0: This week, Music Biz Weekly Podcast, we sit down with a talent buyer. We talk about not burning bridges, how that can really hurt you, uh, some of the mistakes you might make in pitching yourself to a talent buyer. What's the ideal length of a pitch letter? Some great, great information here.
1: Let it roll. Welcome to the Music Biz Weekly Podcast, founded in 2011 and with over 500 weekly episodes, where Michael Branvold and Jay Gilbert Two longtime music industry pros discuss the very latest trends, tools, and tactics that you need to succeed in this. Build new- a stunning band website in minutes with Banzoogle. Go to Banzoogle.com to start your free 30-day trial and use the promo code MusicBizWeekly to get 15% off the first year of any subscription.
0: Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Music Biz Weekly Podcast. You got Mike, you got Jay, we got a cool discussion about talent buyers, yeah. booking agents, negotiating the deal memos. Um, before we get into that, though, just a quick shout out and thank you to Bruce and everybody at HypeBot and Bands in Town for all you do to support us. Um, let's make a quick mention, Jay, that the artist community at Bands yeah. in Town is, is going to be shutting down, I think it was April 16th was the date, I believe. Um, you know, they just, they've just been posting the word about that and they just let us know. And it was a great community. Um, but you know, you can, you can engage with both of us through all of our social media accounts. We've got a music biz weekly Facebook page and stuff like that as well. So the discussion can reach out anytime. Yep. Any, anywhere else out there, even on, on YouTube, if you're watching this video, um, But a quick thank you to our sponsors bandzoogle.com built by musicians for musicians. Bandzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a stunning website and EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in, including dozens of fully customizable templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, Mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, integrations with many other services, including Bandcamp, SoundCloud, YouTube, Bands in Town, and more, so you can easily add content from your other online profiles. And of course, Bandzoogle has amazing live tech support from their musician-friendly team, seven days a week. They've also just recently added custom landing pages. You can now easily create your own music landing pages using preset page templates and built-in funnel tools that will help get your pages up and running and added to your music marketing campaigns in just minutes. Plans at bandzoogle.com start at just $8.29 a month, and that includes hosting and your own free custom domain name. Music Biz Weekly Podcast listeners, Head over to bandzoogle.com to try it for free for 30 days. And when you sign up, use the promo code at MUSICBIZWEEKLY, all one word, and you'll get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com promo code MUSICBIZWEEKLY. And, of course, Discmakers.com. We know it's a digital world, but there's still such an important role for physical media for today's musicians. Digital royalty payments can be so small that selling physical products like CD and vinyl at your gigs and online has become such an important income generator. For every CD you sell at a gig, you might need roughly 3000 streams to make the same amount of money. And that's a lot of streams. Our friends at disc makers are the place to go for your discs and other physical media, including vinyl and USB drives. So we got an offer for you, head over to discmakers.com place an order, for 100 or more CDs, and use the promo code FREEBIZ, and you'll save up to $150 in shipping costs. Nice. Jay, who's sitting down with us this week?
1: We're going to have a really nice conversation with Lucas Sachs. Lucas is the director of booking at Brooklyn Bowl in New York and in Philadelphia. Um, it's We're talking about talent buying. We're talking about venues. We're talking about negotiating things. It's a super great conversation.
0: Yeah. Let it roll. We'll see
1: everybody at the end. Today we're happy to be joined by Lucas Sachs. He's the director of booking at Brooklyn Bowl in New York and Philadelphia. Uh, welcome Lucas. Uh, tell our listeners and viewers, what does a talent buyer, well, what does a director of booking do? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um,
2: director of booking is, you know, it's a bit of a semantic. It's, I'm a talent buyer, concert promoter, booking director. And at the end of the day, it all means the same thing. I'm in charge of programming, uh, ticketed concerts for both Brooklyn Bowl in New York and Brooklyn Bowl in
1: Philadelphia. Wow. That, how many shows do you think you do a year? We're doing about 275 a year in each room. Wow. How do you keep up with all of that?
2: It's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of sleep and the phone is always on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell us about your gig. Tell us about like, what would a week look like? Are you um, on the pulse of the music industry, looking for those right artists for those rooms or people pitching you things? How does that process work? For sure. Yeah. We have a really wide
2: variety of kind of how the week goes function to function day to day, hour to hour. I'm working on about, Ten or so weekly meetings that are both internal and external uh, with various departments to talk about coordinating shows. But in terms of the outreach, you know, we're we're juggling both reaching out to artists that we really want to book that are on the mm-hmm. wish list, including, uh, you know, top tier talent that would be doing underplays. So higher ticket, higher guarantee concerts that are more intimate in a smaller room like ours. And uh, simultaneous to booking local talent to either open for the touring bands or uh, curate a multi band bill in either city. And then on the incoming traffic we're dealing a lot with booking agents, primarily occasionally some other concert promoters who don't own rooms, but will go into other concert venues with uh, usually genre specific types of promoters. Um, so, we, we get a lot of incoming because we're 900 sellable capacity in both rooms. Wow. So, we're dealing primarily with touring acts. Uh, but, you know, we book, like I said, almost 300 shows a year in each room. So, we, we are dealing with a lot of local talent. And because we have Brooklyn Bowls all across the country, we really try to harbor a local scene as much as possible because sometimes those openers become headliners and then they tour nationally. Um, so, we like to support and, and kind of grow in each market with those bands too.
0: What, what's the percentage of your, your contact being directly with artists versus directly with somebody representing an artist?
2: Maybe 25% would be directly with the artist,
1: maybe less. Yeah, that makes sense. And what, what is a perfect scenario for you for an artist? What should they do if they're coming to play your venue? What's their responsibility as far as, you know, advertising, driving traffic, social media, you know, what do you hope to have the artist do to make that show special?
2: Sure. Well, let me start with the pitch from the artist, because I think that's something that often gets overlooked by, uh, by people and something that artists often ask me, what's the best way to get the attention of a talent buyer or promoter, especially yeah. when they're doing hundreds of shows a year in each room? and we're fielding inquiries all day long. Um, you know, we have like a general booking email so multiple people see it and that's pretty common for any venue to have like an info at or booking at. And, you know, for the most part, people read those emails. Um, and I think that's important to know for an unrepresented artist that they're not just shooting an email out into the void but also the way Google searching functions now, it's pretty easy to figure out the name and email for a talent buyer, promoter, or booker for a venue. Um, you know, in this day and age, to try to personalize it either directly to them or at least to know their name when you're reaching out. Um, so it's some to me, it's a lot of the little touches. But uh, in terms of the actual content, you know, because we're a live music venue, we're primarily looking for links to live shows and live performances. Um, You know, we like to look at social following and then we also really want to know where the artist has played in terms of what venue, what ticket price, what size room, how did it do, what day of the week, what other artists did they play with, were they the headliner, the opener, the co-headliner, you know, and being able to paint the full picture of their history in the market will help us dictate if our room is too big or too small or just right. Or you know, in a lot of situations, we'll suggest other venues if the band is too small for us, because we're 900 cap, we're looking for opening slots where bands that have done usually at least about a hundred tickets paid um, in the market um, you know to be considered so that we can try to actually have positive uh, draw to the show that we're adding them to, and the kind of a level of professionalism that comes along with the performance and everything once they've played a couple shows around town. Um, you know, given the size of the room and the sound system, we really want the best quality bands playing the stage. But that's really, you know, that's a way that we figured out and found out about a lot of artists is just by reading really solid pitch letters um, that we might have otherwise overlooked, where they're they're detailed but they're also
0: concise. I was I was going to ask you in in for you personally, what what would you like to see for the length of a pitch letter? You know, I've seen artists send out pitch letters that are you know, pages long, and then I've seen them send out one sentence that says, can we play a show? I mean, what, you know, what is ideal for you? Because obviously attention is very limited and and you need to know what you're dealing with.
2: That's a great question. And I think another reason that this needs to be talked about, um, I think things can be done in a concise way with a paragraph or two. And tour history could be bullet points in terms of socials, just hyperlink all the socials in terms of videos and live content, hyperlink a YouTube video or two. You know, if it's all on the band's website, say all this stuff can be found on the website, it's something clean and simple, um, you know, that shows that they're paying attention. And, you know, it also shows me that a band is going to be willing to push and promote the show really well if they're so professional and, and clear in the process of pitching themselves to get booked by us. So to answer the actual question you asked me about what we expect of the artists, you know, we have an ad budget, we have an in-house marketing team. You know, we're we're it's in our best interest to sell tickets and get people through the door, just as much as the band. On a show where the deal for the artist is based on a percentage of ticket sales, it behooves them even more because they're getting a higher percentage than we are. Right. But at the end of the day, we look at everything as a partnership, not a transaction. So the idea is that we want the bands to be listing the shows on their socials, on their websites, actively promoting, um, ideally doing paid advertising to supplement what we're doing. On the larger bands, we like to get advertiser access and do dark posts and do artist boosted posts. Um, We're regularly purchasing bands in town targeted emails and banner ads on other music blogs and websites that are relevant to that genre of music. Um, We also have PR. So, you know, we try to work bands if they have a publicist or if they have a press release at least they have a record coming out to try to get some sort of uh you know ancillary press or something that's surrounding the show even if it's about the record so we try to really look at it as a partnership so that everybody wins in the end
1: yeah it really sounds like a collaboration and i know michael's had some experience uh, with venues and we've had that conversation that some artists are better at that that collaboration than others can you talk about maybe a few mistakes that maybe some artists make when collaborating with you or lack thereof that may harm their chances of being booked again <laughs> definitely um, <I> think <laughs> it, doesn't come up,
2: it doesn't come up super often but there's been situations before where it's not clear to an artist some of the terminology or some of the like basic, structures of how like the the larger more represented bands work um in terms of like a radius and exclusivity clause so uh you know for anybody that's not familiar with that it's really if the venue is going to be guaranteeing money where regardless of the deal regardless of how many tickets are sold for the show the band is walking with a certain dollar amount the expectation is that the band is going to be promoting the show and it's often in our deal sheets that there's a radius and exclusivity saying that the band is only allowed to play our show with, with, you know, in the market within a certain mile radius and a That's certain fair. date window. And, you know, the idea is if they're going to ask for a certain amount of money, no matter how the show's going to do, we're allowed to require that they're not going to play down the street three days earlier and do that as the album release show and push that show super hard on social and then not really promote and market our show, and leaving that all up to us. So we've definitely been in that situation sometimes where it's either a miscommunication or there's an outside promoter who's not exclusive with the artist or a booking agent who's not the exclusive agent with an artist, where there will be multiple appearances in the market, especially if it's an out-of-town artist that's flying in for something special. And you think you're booking it as the only play that time frame. And there's three other things happening so they can maximize their visit to town. And it makes sense on the artisan, But if it doesn't get relayed properly, it's like a game of telephone that sometimes gets disconnected. Right. Right. You know, so that's probably the most common thing that, that would happen. And it's not super often anymore.
0: How, When it comes to the 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 initial deal memo, how much of the bullet points in there are negotiable
2: i would say that a fair amount of it is negotiable in terms like you know in terms of the number of tickets for guestless spots in terms of number of tickets for press or friends and family of the band in terms of um the set length and the set times in terms of um you know, the actual dollar amounts or even just the deal structure itself because we're not just tied to one deal format. Sometimes it's a percentage of of ticket sales. Sometimes it's guarantee. Sometimes it's a combination, uh, which is what's called the versus deal. And you're basically playing with the scale of what's going to be the bigger amount. Um, So we don't really stick to one deal format. We try to look at what's going to be most advantageous for us and for the band together. but, you know, other than we're always 21 plus pretty much all the time uh, because our business model is based around, you know, selling alcohol and bowling and sure. sort of beverage to people. And, you know, we can pay bands really well because and more competitively than some other promoters where they just have a bar and that's it because we rely on the ancillary income through the bar and the bowling and the food. And at the end of the day, you know, children... Or kids you know in school are not necessarily going to have the disposable income uh, available to them to buy makes those sense. things and then obviously legally they can't drink so right you know for our business model it makes sense to be 21 plus as often as possible and then um mm-hmm. you know in terms of of uh curfews and things you know we have multiple shows in the night on a weekend so those those times can change a little bit but You know, we like to work with everybody to figure out how to maximize the show. You know, we don't like to be in a position where the band can't perform the full show that they want to do, you know, doing a lot of jam bands and New Orleans and Soul and R&B. There's a lot of bands that, you know, in most other clubs and most other genres of music, you can get a 45 to 60 minute headliner set. 60 is pretty common for us. There are bands that say we need three and a half hours to do two sets so we can't even have an opener. (laughs) And if there's a curfew, we're going to go right past it. So, you know, it's a totally different mindset, but we're flexible on these things depending on the artist because we want to be an artist-friendly, and we are an artist-friendly business as well.
1: And that's what allows us to rebook artists, you know, year after year. Yeah, there's got to be some situations where those things that you look at, like show me your tour history or some highlights from your touring, what cap rooms are you playing, that sort of thing. Maybe what is your social footprint? Well, what about some new developing artists that maybe hasn't got a lot of tour history, but there's a hot buzz on them? Maybe it's maybe you could. uh, Do you ever look at their streaming numbers? Do you ever look at their press hits or are there other things that sometimes you need to look at because they simply don't have those other things?
2: Yeah, 100 percent. Great. Great question. We definitely look at streaming numbers. We definitely look at buzz and press. Um, You know, we're regularly talking to other managers, other venue talent buyers, other promoters in in New York, but also in Philadelphia and other regions across the country. Um, You know, we produce a South by Southwest event every year that I just got back from two days ago. And, you know, we definitely look at who's buzzing down there. And, you know, we like to ask everybody who's, you know, what's the hottest band? Who's going to play the 13 shows during South by? Because everybody has to have a show with them. Right. You know, so we're, we're pretty cognizant of that. Also, you know, working closely with uh, relics magazine, which is our, one of our sister companies, you know, we like to keep track of who they're doing press coverage for jam bands, jam based Brooklyn, vegan um, stereo gum, aquarium drunkard, consequence of sound. We're pretty regularly checking uh, every format. And we're also looking a lot at what the smaller clubs have going on yeah. in each of the markets as well. So we try to keep our finger to the pulse. Uh, as often as we can in pretty that's much any
1: genre that we're going to work in yeah that's good to hear because i just got back from south by and i was talking to a booker we were watching this one lineup this huge lineup around the block to see a band play and we we're joking around that that's sort of the best AR bar <laughs> sometimes is to see how enthusiastic that audience is to your point they're playing multiple times and they're a must have, everybody has to go see them. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Thanks for that. Uh,
0: Lucas, you, you, you talked about how you're in constant communication basically with other people in the industry and, and where I'm going with this is in, in the, um, the pitch letter we got for you, one of the topics was talking about not burning bridges. And, you know, if you're, if you've been in the music industry for any period of time, you know, don't burn bridges is like the most common thing anybody's going to teach you day one. Don't burn bridges. But can you give us an example or, or talk to how burning a bridge that you think doesn't matter with this small little hole in the wall coffee shop can end up potentially hurting them when they come to talk to you? I mean, what is the downside of burning bridges
2: i mean i think that i think that there you never really know where somebody's going to be <laughs> in terms of their their job functionality right. you know it's pretty common on the business side of music for people to shift roles and job functions you know relatively frequently or at least several times in their career you know i used to work with somebody who was a, a digital marketer for a yoga and music festival and because that festival was booking a lot of djs and electronic artists he decided to work as an electronic and dj booking agent now he's highly successful and you know it's one of those things where you meet somebody along the way and you know you don't always know what sort of benefit you're going to get from them so if you're an artist and you meet someone on the business side they have some sort of job and you're trying to figure out what that job is and how it might impact you as an artist uh, or a musician or a band, you know, you don't really know where they're going to end up. You know, everyone obviously wants to increase their, their reputation and their, their um, you know, they want to advance in their career on the business side, but so do the artists. Yeah. So, you know, if the artist wants to grow, they also have to be nice to people and, and act professionally at all levels not just seeking out the highest level business person to talk to about whatever it is they're working on. You know, somebody might be a coffee shop uh, barista who also manages a band and that band could blow up in five years, but you never know. So, you know, my outlook was always, and this was something that I learned in in college studying music business was, you know, as someone who wanted to work on the business side, not as a professional performer, um, was you never really know where everybody's gonna be and you know people it's a small enough business that people really do talk to each other it's a business of relationships whether you're an artist or on the business side and if you burn a bridge or have a bad reputation because of some experience with somebody you don't know who they know they might spread the word this person is blacklisted for whatever reason and that could be the end of that so my mind they're Everyone gets into the business, whether you're an artist or a business side person who's not performing uh, in a different way. You don't need a college degree to do it. You don't need a high school diploma to do it, and there are people who have who do have those. And it doesn't really matter. it's It's really how hard you work, who you know, how passionate you are, being at the right place at the right time, and some combination yeah. of all of those things. yeah, so I think no matter what your role is, you know, being professional, courteous, respectful can go a long way because there are people that are not and you know even as a young kid in college as an intern i knew names of people to not talk to and i didn't even know why i knew who they were and the first thing i heard (laughs) about them was this person is not worth your time or this person just avoid them they're a problem yeah yeah but as much as that goes in that respect the opposite is also true For the people that go out of their way to do really positive things and to do good in the business their reputations precede them and they're talked about and they're the people that are sticking their neck out for other people and then i feel like that gets passed down um you know so there's a good sense of mentoring i think in this business no matter whether you're an artist
1: or not i think there's a lot of mentoring I think that's true in all. Sorry, Michael. I think that's true in all aspects of the business. You know, I worked mostly on the recorded music side in my career and my mentor and boss used to tell me this business is not difficult. It's based on relationships and follow through. And that's Mm -hmm. basically what you're saying is if you have good relationships and you do what you say you're going to do, people, you know, they'll respond to that. And I've seen people book some of my artists into venues that maybe they were a little bit of a stretch for, And but the reason they did that is they love them because they always did everything right. They showed up on time. They drove traffic. They were courteous. They brought in people. They tried really hard and they would rather work with someone who's just a little bit under. And And I wanted to ask you just really quickly, I mean, are there people that could fill up your room that you're just like, no, I'm not going to, these are problem people. i not going to do it. Sure. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely artists that we've worked with. It's very infrequent. I will say that extremely infrequent, but they're, you know, because we used to do, I mean, before COVID we were doing even more than 300 shows a year in the room yeah. in New York. So, you know, and we've been open for 13 and a half years. So, You know, by that math, we've done a ton of concerts with a ton of different artists. Yeah, just just even you know, by the law of proportions, there's a few that we would rather not work with again for various reasons, and a lot of it's based on just conduct and behavior. And um, you know, I think that that happens in this business where people can be written off, and usually it's justified. Um, So yeah, there's definitely a few artists that we that we'd try not to work with anymore who can sell tickets, but. You know it's we're extremely conscious and cognizant of what people want to see but also what's going to be the best fan experience and what people are going to have the best time at you know what's the best experience for the fan in our room and we're happy to pass on things that don't make sense for our business model and that's fine too and that's that includes artists that can sell tickets who you know aren't an issue (laughs) or have not done anything wrong. Um but you know, it's we found our niche and I think that we we do a really good job with it. And yeah. we do a lot of different kinds of music, but you know, we're not really doing solo acoustic artists and jazz, intimate jazz performances and seated shows or stand-up comedy because this is a rock club that has loud bowling in it <laughs> and it's meant to feel like a party at all times. So Got therefore it. we prioritize, you know, upbeat Loud, fun music, yeah, and that's that's just the model.
1: Mike, you and I need to go out and you know go to some shows at these venues. They sound like a blast. Exactly. Go, go go bowl <laughs> like, and rock out. My kind of place, yeah. man. A little fried food. Um, a
0: little, Lu- yeah. Lu- Lucas, before before <laughs> we before we wrap here, and I, you know, I want to use this example of what seemed to me as a clear burning bridges, and maybe it ends on a different discussion. But, you know, a few months ago, there was stories all over the media related to um, venues taking cuts of merch sales, which is honestly, people, it's existed for decades and decades and decades. It's not like this is anything new. But an example of Burning Bridge was an artist that was literally on a venue stage performing and stopped and started telling their fans how bad this venue was for taking a cut of their merchandise sales. My first thought was you'll never be playing that place again. And quite possibly (laughs) never in that town again, as the close knit network of venues and agents tell each other this. What's your, what's your take on this media focus on merch sales and a cut going to venues? As I said, it's been around for years. I mean, it, it's, it's part of the business, but what's your take on that? Yeah, I
2: mean, the media angle, I, I definitely understand why it's coming up and why it's a major point of contention. Coming out of peak COVID, when artists were not generating live revenue, they were relying so heavily on merch sales and monetizing live streams to no, nobody in the audience. And, you know, just figuring out ways to basically gear back, like, you know, to do it, make ends meet when not touring, but then also gear up for when live was coming back. And there was a lot of discussion about how to make live more sustainable for artists and try to retool a bunch of the, the you know, the old industry standards that maybe didn't necessarily work for everybody. And, you know, the ta- the cost of touring has gone up significantly. Whether it's gas, renting vans, renting buses, paying tour managers, paying production people, renting production equipment, everything, uh, every possible piece of it gone up. So the artists want to get paid more, if not the same, but ideally more. And every penny counts when they haven't been touring for three years and they're going to go back on the road after they finally have a new record they spent a lot of time working on and they've got new merch and they've got a new team or they rehired their old team or whatever it might be and i understand why historically our business has been viewed as you know your live nations your ags and your big corporate entities who are faceless but they're tied to ticketmaster and they're tied to access and you know they're always out to pinch every penny squeeze every dollar and you know take advantage of both the fans and the artists and that's always really seemed like the media side of it is is that the big concert promoters who you know live nation got the big injection of of uh stock purchasing during covid um from saudi arabia i believe like there, there are things like that where those things get press attention but it also i think is lost on some people that Very many venues shuttered and didn't reopen during COVID. The National Independent Venue Association had to be formed in order to help get government assistance and keep the venues operating. And many employees, even at the large corporations, were on furlough, if not uh, fired during COVID. You know, a lot of my friends were out of work. I myself was on furlough for 10 months, um, you know, because the room in Brooklyn was on an 18-month Closure, and we didn't we hadn't opened Philadelphia yet, so you know, the costs of hiring staff, paying staff, paying rent, expenses in food cost, alcohol costs, um, production, also renewing production in the venues. I think those costs are up too, and then also not wanting to overcharge fans to go see an artist they used to pay less to see. Uh, you know, okay, you can account for inflation still, but you know it's it's a balancing act and i think that the media attention has been primarily focused on the artist being taken advantage of but everything is a two-way street and it's like a scale like we're talking about what a versus deal is what's the higher what's the the weightier piece of the scale it's not always consistent it could be one side of the scale or the other and i think that that's reflective in this business too you know we try to pay artists the same that we paid them before covid we understand they want to also have higher ticket prices so that they have the potential to make more money. Um, we want to support their merch. One of our venue policies for the venue in Brooklyn that's been there since the day we opened was that we do not take a merch cut as long as we've covered the cost of the guaranteed dollars to the artist. So most venues don't do that. They negotiate a small percentage that they keep. That percentage might fluctuate slightly, but they're almost always taking something. In New York, we are very rarely taking any merch cut at all from the bands, and we'll allow them to sell merch a bit longer, uh, even when we have a two show night. Um, and we put them you know, we prominently feature the the merch area, which you have to physically walk past in both our venues in New York and Philadelphia to get to the stage area. Great.
0: yeah, you know it's 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 a it's an interesting little uproar. I think a lot of it is driven just by the fact that that the fans don't understand the business of touring, so they just think somebody's all of a sudden out of the blue stealing my favorite band's money. But when I when I worked with a venue a number of years ago pre-COVID, you know, I distinctly remember artists and/or their reps going, "Hey, can we reduce that merch cut that you're taking? Can we waive that merch cut?" And I can guarantee you, in 100% of the time, we did something to to alleviate the concerns that the artist had. Sometimes we might just get rid of it altogether. Sometimes we cut it in half. And I guess my point is, as an artist out there, just ask. Don't, you know the first reaction shouldn't be going on stage and yelling at everybody. The first reaction should have been when you got that contract or the deal memo to pick up the phone and go, can we get that cut in half? Can you waive it? Cause of, you know, cause I, I think you would agree most venues want to try and come to, you know, fair, fair terms for everybody here. You're not going to sit, take it or leave it. It's not that way of cutting deals out there. It's, What do you need? What can we do?
2: You're right on the money there. A lot of the time, if you don't ask, you won't get. But if you ask, everything can be in discussion. I think that that's lost on some people. But in the business of negotiating, it behooves both sides to, you know, if you're the side that's giving out the money, you want to give out the least amount you can. So you're not going to be offering more than you want to in a negotiation. If you're on the other side and you're receiving you know as an artist you're the commodity i'm just purchasing the commodity but i want to i want to get the best price i can get but at the same time i need the artist to be happy and be excited to play the show and promote the show because i can do better and if they have a great experience we want to deepen and grow the relationship with that same artist their side projects their management team their label their publicist yeah their booking agents roster whatever it might be it always behooves us to
1: make sure that they're happy doing yeah. the show it really is a yep. collaboration so lucas where can people learn more about you uh, brooklyn bowl new york philly where can they find uh, more information brooklynbowl.com all four Easy. brooklyn
2: bowls are out there we're opening a new one in washington dc in 2025 which we announced a few months ago and uh we're very excited about the growth. Fantastic.
1: Congratulations awesome. on that. So great talking with you, Lucas. Continued success. And uh, next time I'm in the area, I'm I'm definitely coming in, maybe for a little bowling, a little hamburger, a little rock and roll. Yeah, bowling, beer, and music.
2: <laughs> Let's do it. Thank you awesome. so much. I really appreciate it. Right, th- th-
1: th- thank you, Lucas. Thanks, Lucas. We appreciate you. Visit discmakers.com to place an order for 100 or more CDs. And when you check out use promo code free biz and get free shipping up to a uh one-
0: jay it's i I always love talking to people who are agents talent buyers um it's they're they're a great group of people yeah that sadly get a lot of unnecessary heat thrown on them yeah um because it's like it's been a decades long battle of artist versus agent you know nobody wants to nobody seems to want to trust each other and that's not the case as lucas said we're in this together it's a collaboration it's a collaboration we want to work with you on your future tours on your solo Mm -hmm. projects and you know it, it it's just a matter of being professional and and working together not not booking that show and thinking that's that's it you're done.
1: Yeah, that's just the beginning, right? There's a lot of work and you know this better than most. It's a collaboration. There's a lot of work there. It's all about your relationships and building those relationships. And what I liked about Lucas is he he kind of pulled back that curtain and showed us a little bit about how the sausage is made. But it's also that people are inherently afraid of what they don't understand. And the more that we kind of educate people on how these things work, the less you're going to fear it. You don't need to fear the venue or the talent booker. Don't, any don't, of that. don't fear the negotiate.
0: Partner. Don't fear negotiation. I think there's 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 a number of artists out there that feel like, okay, we just got the date confirmed or we got that deal memo. But if I push back on anything, they're gonna pull it. And yeah, they're going to I'm going to lose the show. No, no, no. They kind you of know, expect
1: some negotiation. In I, there. I, I was,
0: I was going to say, I think most would expect a little bit of negotiation. If you don't negotiate on anything that also can send a sign of, well, are you even are you reading? Engaged? The con- are yeah. you engaged? Are you paying attention to what's going on here? Am I ever going to hear from you as we talk about promoting this together? Um, so, yeah, don't don't be afraid to to question anything in that deal memo. Can you know now granted we we used to do um you know the the non-compete radius clauses. Pretty common. And it's it's very common. And those are harder to negotiate out of a contract because they're there for a legit reason. Yeah. But
1: you can ask.
0: There's always you exceptions. Can, Maybe there's you're always playing exceptions. a private
1: event that isn't going to affect theirs. Maybe it's 100%. a promotional thing. You ask the question, have the conversation, don't just take it for granted.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. Don't don't take it for granted. Ask the question and you will be surprised, I bet, on what you can get, especially when it comes to something as simple as a cut on merch sales. You know, if the deal memo says 20%, go back and say I'll give you 10. They might just go, okay, whatever. Sure, 10%. It's all a negotiation. It's all negotiation. Um, So uh, before we wrap up, just a quick shout out and thank you to Bruce and everybody at HypeBot and Bands in Town. And, of course, to our sponsors, Banzoogle.com and DiscMakers.com. And uh, that's it, everybody. We will see
1: you next week. Subscribe on YouTube. Follow and rate us on Spotify. Subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. We appreciate and your industry support. industry professionals listen to the Music Biz Weekly podcast. If you have a product or service and would like to reach this audience, get in touch with Michael or Jay to discuss sponsorship opportunities. This is for Music Biz Weekly, provided by LarryDavisVoice.com and by JessicaMarsVoice.com. That's Mars with
2: a Z.